Oh, thank you, Berkeley. Thanks for having me. Honored to be here. Today I get to tell you the story, the 3,000 year backstory to the Tesla electric car. Uh, but the story does not start in Silicon Valley. Uh, that for that story, we need to cross the country to America's epicenter of innovation uh, in the 1740s to New England, of all places, and to the time of Benjamin Franklin and his lightning rod uh, for an electrifying story filled with lightning and thunder that I get to share with you tonight. In the 17th and 18th centuries, churches built steeples high into the sky, and within those steeples, they put bells. And on those bells was often inscribed some form of the Latin phrase, fulgura frango, translated, I break up the lightning flashes. Church bells did many things, including suppressing thunderstorms. It became a common practice beginning in the medieval age and extending into the 17th and 18th centuries that during a major thunderstorm, for local bell ringers to climb up into the church's steeple to ring the church's bells loudly, and thereby doing so would perhaps, perhaps, would ward off the divine wrath and the devilish invasion in disguise. That was the theory. But the theory had two major design fails built into the plan. First of all, the bells were cast metal. And second of all, those cast metal bells hung in the steeple, which was usually the town's high point. So you can imagine how well this worked out for the bell ringers. In France and Belgium alone, over the span of just three decades, 30 years, nearly 400 bell towers were hit by lightning. Many of them burned down to the ground, killing more than 100 bell ringers. In a twist of irony, during thunderstorms, townspeople were encouraged to keep their distance from the churches, while the town's pubs and the shadier establishments almost always escaped untouched from the divine displeasure in the tempest. So bell ringers were not fans of steeples in thunderstorms, but one man loved them, Benjamin Franklin. For him, the steeple was the perfect place for his lightning experiments. And Franklin came to understand that storm clouds contained an electrical charge, notwithstanding their heavy loads of water. Even though electricity was a fire, he theorized, it was a different kind of fire, one that could coexist with water. So he developed the concept of a lightning rod to protect structures from fire by drawing off electrical charges from lightning. By 1750, he was proving his theory to be true. He made these little miniature houses and then filled them with gunpowder. And then he had this big battery and he would, he would strike them with a, a spark. And he would strike that little house with the, the gunpowder and it would explode. And then he would get another little house, but he'd put a little wire on it, a little lightning rod, a little miniature one. And he would hit it with the battery, nothing would happen. Hit it with the battery, nothing would happen. He proved with that experiment in 1750 that the lightning rod would protect a structure in a thunderstorm. But even as the evidence became indisputable, Franklin's invention raised theological alarm bells. One pastor in Boston proposed that if you diverted God's wrath of lightning into the earth, it would simply supercharge future earthquakes. 
In fact, a major earthquake hit New England soon after Franklin began diverting bolts into the ground, seemingly proving the fear to be true. John Adams, who would eventually become a president in the United States, summarized what he was hearing from leaders in New England at the time, that the lightning rod itself was, quote, an impious attempt to rob the Almighty of his thunder, to wrest the bolt of vengeance out of his hand, end quote. Across the Atlantic Ocean, the French, who loved Franklin, more eagerly adopted his lightning rod. But even there, the French pastor and famous physicist, Jean-Antoine Nollet, who bought in 100%, 100% to the rod's effectiveness, refused to adopt it, saying the rod was, quote, as impious to ward off heaven's lightnings as for a child to ward off the chastening rod of its father. To his dismay, Benjamin Franklin found himself locked inside a theological debate. The more scientists knew about the workings of lightning and electricity, the more they understood how it worked, the less mysterious these phenomena appeared. The more one could control lightning's fury, the less vulnerable the world seemed before God. Franklin, it seemed, was stealing God's thunder. His lightning rod sparked a debate that split the 18th century. Is the lightning rod on a church steeple an act of faith, or is it an act of God-thwarting unbelief? That's the debate I want to settle tonight, because if we can answer this question, it will get clarity on electric cars and resolve one key tensions that Christians face here inside the Bay Area, the epicenter the most highly advanced technological society the world has ever seen. To understand our latest tech, we turn to an old book, the book of Job. You heard the book of Job mentioned already tonight. That's where we're going to turn. You can turn there in your Bibles. Job is an ancient book, perhaps the oldest book in the Bible. It's about the sufferings of a man named Job. Job is a kingly figure. He's a wealthy man. Perhaps he's a local ruler, local king. And then his life is upended, uh, partly due to a major thunderstorm brought by the devil, permitted by God. You heard that story earlier. In Job, we find the longest and the most vivid sermon in the Bible on thunderstorms from a young man named Elihu, the youngest of Job's friends in the book. Because he's one of Job's friends, we can put an asterisk on everything that he says, although he seems to be especially trustworthy in comparison to the other friends. But Elihu is not an infallible prophet. Uh, Elihu is not a professional theologian. He's just a relatively trustworthy guy who's trying to figure out how God's sovereignty and nature work. In that sense, Elihu is a forerunner to Benjamin Franklin. And so thunderstorms are a major theme in the book of Job. We heard this earlier. At the start, Job had 7,000 sheep and very many servants, but then a lightning storm hit. The fire of God fell from heaven, and it burned up his 7,000 sheep and consumed his many servants. We read about that in Job chapter 1. So a storm of huge magnitude has shattered Job's life at the beginning of the book. And now we jump into the story at the end of the book. Because a second storm is now brewing. God will soon speak from this second thunderstorm, beginning in chapter 38. But we're going to look at chapter 36 and 34 and 35. 
In chapters 36 and 37, this thunderstorm, this new second thunderstorm, is gathering in the distance. This is the context. So imagine Elihu, this is Job's youngest friend, the final human voice that we're going to hear in the book of Job, in the last speech of the book of Job. He's setting up God's dramatic entrance that ends the book. That's our scene. So we find Elihu is preaching a sermon on lightning as thunder grows behind him. You can hear the distant thunder growling in the distance. The winds are picking up. The sun is shrouded and lightning is marching closer and closer to Job. The storm is brewing. God will speak from this second storm directly to Job. So this is the dramatic context of Elihu's sermon that we'll study now in beginning in Job chapter 36, verse 24 and following. I'll be reading from the ESV translation, uh, Job 36, verse 24. In this thunderstorm, we marvel at God, we exult over his power, and we witness his direct actions in creation. We pick up Elihu's sermon here as he speaks to his friend, Job, in chapter 36, verse 24. Elihu says this, remember to extol his work, God's work in the thunderstorms, of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. In these early verses, we meet the theme of this text, storms and God. God is eternal spirit, holy other than us, different than us in every way, ancient, wise, a mystery beyond our understanding. But storms and natural laws are different. We can learn from them within limits, Elihu says. We can understand storms. The natural world is hard to understand, not because it cannot be known, but because it's all happening from such a great distance away from Elihu. He can see the storm, but his distance means it's a mystery to him. It's all happening afar, far up in the sky where he sees it. Elihu wants to investigate God's works in nature, but he can only see nature from a distance. We, we understand the natural world today because we can zoom in close, right? We've got weather balloons and drones and satellites and telescopes and microscopes of all kind. Proximity is our advantage when it comes to the natural order. We can get close to the storms. Elihu has none of these advantages, and yet the distance doesn't stop Elihu from investigating God's work in nature. Verse 37. For he, God, draws up the drops of water, they distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. This is an amazing statement. Elihu delivers a proto-scientific description of the formation of rain. This is an ancient dude figuring out how evaporation works to some degree. It's primitive, but he's on to atmospheric water cycles. He doesn't understand evaporation like we do. But he's pressing into a natural phenomenon he sees with the scientific curiosity that will eventually lead to the discovery of evaporation. That's a law set in place by the Creator. So he's inquiring into the atmospheric phenomena at play. And as Elihu works to figure out the storms, notice that he clings to two truths at the same time. Number one, God is invisible, but he is majestically present in his creation. That's what I want you to see all over this text. We can't see God, but we can see him work. 
So Elihu investigates nature far off, full of mystery, but he knows this much. Every lightning strike is fired directly by God and is aimed at a specific target. That's what we see next in verse 29. Can anyone understand the spreading of clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? There's natural mystery here to Elihu. Verse 30. Behold, he scatters his lightning about him. Where lightning bolts are, there God is. It's his presence. And he covers the roots of the sea. I love this line. He covers the roots of the sea. Literally, he uncovers the roots of the sea. A lightning bolt hits the sea, hits the surface, and for a split second, it illuminates the bottom of the water. Exposes the roots of the sea. More literally, he uncovers the roots of the sea by that strike. It's a great picture. Verse 31, for by these bolts, he judges people and he gives food in abundance. So Elihu doesn't fully understand the weather patterns, but he knows enough to see that rain gives food to all creatures and that blessing is connected to lightning and that lightning is connected to God. So on one hand, yes, the lightning expresses God's displeasure. But lightning also expresses God's love. Lightning judges, lightning feeds, lightning is complex, as we'll see in a moment. But in every single bolt, God is present, according to this incredible statement. Verse 32, he, God, covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike its mark. God's hands are charged with crackling lightning. You can't help here but think of Zeus in the thunderbolt or think of the most powerful, unrivaled weapon feared among all the pagan gods or the storm gods of Elihu's age who also held lightning bolts in their hands. It was the most powerful weapon to have. You could wield lightning, you were the most powerful god. Those fictional characters are one-dimensional, but the living god of the universe truly holds thunderbolts in his hands. And not only does he hold them, he shoots them. And not only does he shoot them, he aims them. And not only does he aim them, this forked and zigzagging fire from the sky hits its mark every single time. God never misses. And this is what led to the utter confusion of Bible-believing Christians in New England. The town bar is never tasered, but the church bells are bullseyes. So what gives? Whatever else lightning is, it's never less than the presence of God shown to us in the natural world. God is here. God is speaking. Verse 33. It's crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. Chapter 37, verse 1. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Thunder from the sky triggers something like a thunderstorm in our chest. Have you ever experienced that before? Uh, we feel, you see a bolt close, and it's like thunder is inside of your chest. You feel it. Uh, this past summer, we were driving home late in the desert. We live in Phoenix, and amazing cloud-to-cloud uh, -cloud lightning storms uh, all summer in Phoenix. It just takes your breath away. But one night, we were driving home, and we saw these bolts going, they're just strobing back and forth, like 20 miles in these clouds, just cloud-to-cloud -cloud strike, just silent in the black sky, strobing silently. 
And my son turned to me as we were driving. He says, every time I see that, I feel something in my chest. I was like, yes, that's exactly right. We feel that thunder in our chest. It's inside of us. Uh, and that's what Elihu is feeling here when he sees the lightning. Verse 2, keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. That deep growl you hear as the distant storm comes closer and closer. And tell, verse 3, under the whole heaven he, God, lets it go in his lightning to the corners of the earth. I don't know if you've ever felt that, to the corners of the earth, like you're standing somewhere and lightning is hitting north, east, south, and west. That happens sometimes in the summer in Phoenix. It's a crazy experience because the lightning is coming from every direction. That's what Elihu is saying uh, he's experienced before. And when a bolt flashes and hits especially close, what do we do? Bolt hits close, we go one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, four. Boom, verse 4, after it, after the bolt, his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice. And he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. So graphic, so loud, so bold in what Elihu is saying. Elihu is not saying that we cannot understand nature. He's saying that we cannot fully understand all of God's purposes in nature. And we certainly cannot stop God's fire from the sky. We sense our powerlessness before the bolt. And yet every peal of thunder is the voice of God speaking. The Bible makes that very clear. Now back to Job, who was suffering in dust and ashes. Job's bitter complaint was that God had left him in the dark and disappeared. But Elihu corrects Job. God didn't abandon Job. He's no absentee creator. God is here. God's closeness echoes in the skies in every peal of thunder. It's a point made in all four seasons. Verse 6, For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man. Literally, he handcuffs every man that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. Okay, this is an amazing statement by Elihu. By inclement weather, God seals the hand of every man. He literally like zip ties our hands and places us under house arrest. That's what Elihu is saying God does in the storms. Or as the NIV says, if you use that translation, quote, he stops all people from their labors, end quote. Blizzards and monsoons shut people inside their homes and beasts inside their caves. So God commands dumps of snow and torrents of rain. Why does he do that? Because he is positioning and repositioning as on a chessboard. He's moving around all of his creatures. And God uses his creation to guide each of those creatures. Major weather disruptions are one of God's means to guide his creatures to where he wants them. Delayed flights, canceled meetings, viruses. If God chose to keep us all inside in 2020, he could do it. God governs the business of his creatures through his created order. And very often through weather patterns. He governs our travels by snow, by ice, by lightning storms, by power outages, by flooding, you name it. All the seasons are included here, but winter especially is on his mind. Verse 9. From his chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. And then, of course, once again, 
God wields lightning. Verse 11, he loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. Again, we've seen this. Elihu is on to evaporation. Water goes up, makes clouds thicken, and then lightning strikes, and that same water pours back down onto the creatures. Elihu gets that. God loads the clouds with moisture, and he scatters his lightning through those clouds. He shoots those bolts through an atmospheric channel. Elihu is doing something remarkable here by making two points at the very same time. Number one, the unseen God is here. And number two, his presence is mediated through the natural laws that govern the sky. He is doing theology and science at the same time. Can you do theology and science at the same time? All God's people said, yes, you can. The unseen God and his seen creation working in tandem. Be Christian in science. Verse 12, they, those clouds loaded with water and fire, turn around and around by his guidance. So God has leashed these storms like a dog on a walk. Thunderstorms are like a leashed dog in God's hand. Why? To accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. God harnesses the storm, he leads it, he directs it, so that every lightning bolt fulfills his will for creation. So what is his will? His will is three things in verse 13. Whether for correction, or for his land, or for love, has said, his love. Whether for correction, or for his land, or for love, he causes it to happen. So beyond God repositioning his creatures, lightning fulfills his will in three ways. Number one, he uses bolts to chasten and to correct sinners. He does that. It's one of his aims, one of his purposes in thunderstorms. Number two, he shoots bolts to rain down blessings on the thirsty land to feed all of his creatures, including us. Number three, he sends bolts for love. For love, has said, his covenant, faithful, undying, loyal love. So if you can only imagine God and lightning in a one-dimensional Zeus-like thing, some angry God firing off a pistol of lightning, whoever angers him, you're going to miss the love of God in the lightning bolt. None of this means that it's easy to interpret what each storm means for, for each of us. Elihu says that very clearly. We know that God sends the storm, but we don't know exactly why he sends the storm. And trying to figure out God's intent, his providential aims, is very tricky. It's very dangerous. And so Elihu is throwing some serious side-eye to Job's other friends. Okay, He's saying it's not so easy to interpret providence in other people's lives. And finally, as the storm builds up to God's speech at the end of Job, Elihu makes eye contact with his suffering friend, Job. Verse 14, hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Job desperately needs to realign his attitude, but what can change Job's attitude in suffering? Consider the wondrous works of God in creation. That's basically the summary of what God is going to tell Job in chapters 38 to 42. He will speak to Job from the storm, the storm that's gathering behind Elihu, 
He will speak to Job from that storm to remind Job of wonder after wonder after created wonder of what you can find in this creation. But we end Job's story here. Elihu is trying to understand lightning. He's an observant man of faith. He trusts in God. He marvels at the patterns of the atmosphere. He's the Bible's Ben Franklin, (laughs) but with better theology than Ben Franklin had. And he's asking his friend Job, Job, do you know how the lightning works? Do you know about the electricity in the clouds, like batteries that hold a charge until it's time to fire a bolt? Can you explain how water and fire coexist in the sky? No, for Job and for Elihu, these are great mysteries, but for us, they're not really mysteries anymore. We understand how a lot of this works physically, and that's where the tension with science arises. And So we need to move from Elihu to Ben Franklin to the Tesla Model X today. Let me do that with six brief takeaways as we close. Number one is review. God fires every lightning bolt he never misses. God shoots lightning from his hand to a bullseye every single time. Elihu makes this clear and his words are confirmed by other Old Testament texts as well, namely Psalm 135 and Jeremiah 10. If you're looking for other texts, talk about this. Psalm 135 and Jeremiah 10. For some of you, this is news to you. This is a missing part of your theology. A God is present in the lightning bolt. That is not pagan superstition. That is biblical orthodoxy. Number two, God fires every lightning bolt through atmospheric channels. He ordains the means. God shoots lightning from his hands to a bullseye every time, but this sovereign marvel does not stop Elihu's curiosity. He still searches for the atmospheric means that God uses to do this. Providence drives him into the natural sciences, not away from them. Elihu is both trying to unriddle the mystery of God's providence in the storm, and he's trying to unriddle the atmospheric mechanics of how the storm works. And he's doing both at the very same time. You can pursue science and believe in God without any contradiction whatsoever. So Elihu is simultaneously seeking to decipher the voice of God in atmospheric physics in the invisible world and the visible world, in the spirit realm and in the physical realm, the laws of providence and the laws of nature. He's modeling faith-filled science because those two worlds work in tandem. Number three, God governs every natural law and we ignore them to our peril. God governs his creation by certain fixed laws. Do those laws bend and make allowances for our mistakes? They don't. 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said this. It's a little graphic. But this is an illustration he gives. Every violation of natural laws is avenged, he says. Speaking of the laws of lightning, he gives us this grisly example. Quote, the simple countryman in his ignorance of the laws of electricity is overtaken by a pelting storm and to escape from the drenching rain, he runs beneath some lofty tree to screen himself beneath its spreading branches. The law of nature that elevated points should attract the lightning. The man does not know this. He does not intend to defy his maker's natural law. But for all that, when the death dealing fluid splits the tree, it leaves a senseless corpse. 
The law does not suspend its operations, though that man may be the husband upon whose life the bread of many children may depend, though he may have been one of the most guileless and prayerful of mankind, though he may have been utterly unconscious of having exposed himself to the force of a physical law of God, and yet he still dies, for he has placed himself in the way of a settled law of nature, and it takes its course. The natural law is fixed. Be done with lightning and it will cost you, perhaps with your life. So don't be done with the fixed natural laws. That's dangerous and deadly. Fear nature, fear God. Number four, fear drives our innovation. Fear drives our innovation. Necessity is the mother of invention. And so is fear. Fear is also the mother of invention. One way God ignites science and innovation is through fear. He uses all sorts of human desires to motivate our discoveries of creation, but fear is a biggie. Our fear drives us to understand, and understanding leads to discovery. So why do we understand electricity today? Because humans face the sheer power of lightning and were motivated to engineer. Fear drives man into God's created patterns. And that fear is how you end up with the lightning rod. Number five, lightning rod strikes obey God. Lightning rod strikes obey God. So if God commands each bolt, it would be an act of unbelief to divert that bolt with a lightning rod, right? That's the question we're back to. And the answer is, no. No. Actually, God teaches us to make lightning rods. To divert the lightning is not to act in unbelief, but one that can be made in faith. This is because, as theologian Abraham Kuyper writes, quote, When God accumulates electricity in the clouds and the possibility increases of a lightning strike that might endanger the lives of a family or their property, we are not only permitted but obligated to apply every means available to avert or at least mitigate this danger. It is none other than God himself who has included within nature this means to divert the lightning. And when a dangerous bolt of lightning travels down along the metal rod and terminates in the ground, it is God himself who guides the lightning along that rod and who smothers the enormous spark in the earth. Humankind does not do this, and Satan does not do this. It is God, and whoever honors God's majesty in the lightning that flashes, yet does not honor the majesty with which God draws this flashing lightning to the rod, grounding and guiding it away, takes from God half the honor due him. No bolt travels harmlessly down a lightning rod unless God directs it that way through the innovation of man. When the bolt travels down the rod, God guides it there. And this is the key theological point that was missing from 1750 New England and for many Christians today who fear that human innovation somehow strong arms God, makes him look weak, that's a myth. New tech never bullies our sovereign God. It reveals more of him, his patterns in creation, and his generosity to us, leading to point number six. 
No one sees God's love in lightning like we do. No one sees God's love in lightning like we do. Once Benjamin Franklin proved decisively with a kite that clouds hold an electric charge like a huge battery in the sky, he opened up a floodgate of new human innovation. We could make battery farms. We could envision man-made lightning bolts to power our cities. And the power that we now recognize in electricity, God had already hidden in nature from the very hour of paradise. The electrified age, the electrified age that we enjoy today was hidden by God in the lightning bolt from the beginning of time. In due time, innovators were ordained by God to discover electricity and to electrify cities and industries, although in doing so, we added nothing new to creation. It was there all along. And if we had failed to harness electricity, we would have deprived God of the honor due to him. Electricity was hidden for millennia in the lightning bolt, a harness power that changed the world forever. In electricity, we give God glory for the lightning in ways that the lightning alone does not offer. It magnifies the creator's brilliance more than a simple lightning storm. That's the highest value and purpose possible for human technology, to disclose more of the creator's brilliance. So Ben Franklin didn't steal God's thunder. No, he discovered lightning. He diverted it and introduced the world to electricity at the scale of what would eventually power our cities. Electricity was not invented by Ben Franklin, nor did it originate by inventors by the last names of Watts or Amper or Volta or Faraday or Ohm or Tesla. No, 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 no. These innovators were raised up by God at the right time to discover and to divert and to harness what was hidden in plain sight from the very beginning of creation. God was hiding electricity all along in the lightning bolt. Electricity was hidden in the bolt awaiting a discoverer. And once we found it, the age of, of electrification began. A watershed moment in human history. The electrified age, and it added nothing new to God's creation. It was there all along. God used the fear of lightning to drive us to discover what now powers this room. The natural lightning bolt that tears through the sky and the artificial lightning bolt in the power plant that cause our lights to work right now are equally from God. Yes, he uses means. Yes, he uses clouds. Yes, he uses power plants. But if Elihu were here today, he would say, behold the love of God in the lightning bolt coursing through the wires of this campus. Power hidden in creation from day one. Let me attempt to summarize all of this, and it's a lot, I know. Human fear of God in lightning drives us to discover more of God's love in electricity. Elihu had no idea how much of God's love to us was charged in that lightning bolt. He could never have predicted uh, God's love to thousands of COVID sufferers whose lives would be sustained um, by ventilators. He could not have imagined God's love in millions of heart defibrillators and pacemakers or in the lights and the air conditioning and the dishwashers and computers and smartphones and televisions that we use every single day. 
Elihu could not have predicted the Tesla Model X, nor the new electric uh, F-150 pickup truck, which is called, anybody? The Lightning, right? It's a great name. I was watching the commercial, I was like, yes, the Lightning. F-150 uh, EV, that's, that's a perfect name for it. Our electrified lives originate in the first cause of the electrified age, in the bolt in the sky, harnessed into wires to power farms and cities and homes and gadgets and highways and industries and churches and online media ministries. So the challenge for us is this. Don't ignore the God of the lightning bolt. Don't take electricity from creation without giving your awe to the creator who created every bolt of energy. Don't hear the voice of God in lightning and then grow deaf to his glory and to his love for us in the electricity we use every single day. As we see in Elihu himself, the utter transcendence and all sufficiency of God does not, does not stop us from investigating natural causes. It pushes us into the science of understanding how the means work, how God designed this creation to work. So we study physics and quantum physics. We study atmospheric phenomena. We harness those powers. Then we use them to disclose the glory of God. So don't be done with electricity. Don't stand under a tree in a lightning storm. And don't use electricity to ignore the God who patterned electricity, who gave you this gift from his kindness. Put lightning rods on your steeples, yes. Redirect the lightning. But harness its power, make electric cars, and use every watt of power to do what lightning was always intended to do, to showcase the majesty and the uniqueness and the beauty and the generosity of the creator who loaded this planet with all sorts of power and things to discover and to make in this sandbox we call creation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, your lightning is awesome. Electricity is amazing, but it all pales in comparison to the power of what we do right now in prayer. When we come to you, prayer is like a lightning rod. When we pray, our, our prayers pierce through the clouds and, and bring down a mighty power from on high. And even more graphically, the, the lightning rod is a metaphor for the cross of Jesus Christ. When you're just holy wrath gathered over us like a swirling dark storm. Did we have any escape? Did we have anywhere to run for safety? No, there was nowhere to hide as sinners. We are sinners exposed to your holy justice unless you provide a way out. Like a lightning rod in a storm, the cross takes into itself all the death from the lightning and all the fury from the tempest. The skies boom over us as sinners. The sky booms over us with the law of a perfect justice to be avenged upon sinners. But in Christ, we can look up with calm delight for we are safe beneath the cross. This is the most important discovery we can ever make in this world. And yet in the natural elements of this world, we hear your voice, we hear your chastening, we hear your abounding goodness to your creatures, and we hear your love to us all in the lightning bolt. May we use all of life, all of the means, all of the science, all of the technology, all the gadgets, all of our electricity, use everything to live our lives proclaiming your love and the greatness of Jesus Christ, the maker of all things in heaven and on earth, the true inventor of electricity. In his name we pray.